And I think the important thing is to be really fact-based and data-driven and not fall in love with your ideas, to be dispassionate and say, look, if this is a customer need that we're really meeting, let's validate that and let's make sure that if it's not, uh, then you move ahead. Hey, this is Seath Padgett and welcome to the RV Entrepreneur Podcast, episode 119. The Irby Entrepreneur is a weekly podcast for nomadic entrepreneurs, and today I am interviewing Ashish Bhattachara. Ashish is a VP of Planning and Development at Winnebago, and he's somebody who I've had a lot of very interesting conversations with over the past six months. We've hung out at RV shows when Alyssa and I have done projects for Winnebago, and I love talking to him because he's just this wealth of knowledge when it comes to engaging consumers, understanding customer behavior, and just so many things when it comes to business in general. And I wanted to have him on the podcast. He's not an RVer. He didn't actually ever step into an RV until he jumped into this role at Winnebago. And even though we do a lot of sponsored stuff with Winnebago, like they're sponsoring our conference, this was by no means like a content-sponsored podcast. I just really wanted to have Ashish on this episode. One piece of feedback that I've got from you guys has just been that you really like digging into the practical. After some episodes like where Alyssa and Kelsey dig into the Pinterest or I've had somebody on the podcast who talks about the handling taxes as an RV entrepreneur, I've gotten feedback that you guys really, really love those types of episodes. So a few things that we talk about on today's episode is why you should celebrate your wins, how to have an entrepreneur mindset, even if you are an employee, and how to test your ideas through market research and listening to your customers and actually make informed decisions before you spend a ton of time building a product that nobody wants. And before diving into this episode, I just want to give you guys a quick update on kind of what's happening in our lives. We're planning for our next RV Entrepreneur Summit. So we have the RV parked in Fredericksburg, Texas. We will be here for the next few weeks getting ready for our conference. We have 250 people coming this year. So we doubled in size from last year, which is amazing. We're really excited to have a lot of awesome speakers and people coming here to Fredericksburg. And another thing that's happening in our lives this week, as many of you guys know, been working on Campground Booking now for almost a year and a half. And... I haven't talked about it in a while, so I just want to give a really quick update on what's happening on that front. We have a number of campgrounds that we are working with in British Columbia who are going to be handling all of their campground through us. So we're managing the property. They're using our software to take online reservations. And we actually had the first one go live last Saturday, and it went really terrible. I talked about this in a blog post. But essentially, they let us know, I think, 48 hours uh, before they went live that they actually expected over 500 reservations going through the system. So this was pretty much selling out faster than a Taylor Swift concert. And I didn't expect that from campgrounds. And as you can imagine, a system that hasn't been ruggedly used by a lot of users, it crashed pretty quickly. Actually, our servers didn't crash or anything. Those held up just fine. But there was a couple little bugs in there that got in the way and, and messed us up. And we ultimately had to remove it. Uh, take down the booking page, call the customer, and we told her that we were going to handle support for all of the campers and make everything right. And so even within a matter of minutes, there were still over 100 reservations, uh, I think within four minutes, that that went through the, the system. And then we spent this whole last week responding to customer emails and making campers happy. The plus side, though, has been that we've got a lot of good ex- hands-on experience with our product acting like a campground owner. And so it ended up working out, and I got a lot of amazing comments from people in our Facebook group and on the blog that I wrote about it uh, on our website just saying, you know what, anytime you build a new system and push it live, stuff will break. 
And it's all about how you handle it and go from there, which I'm really proud of. My team, Bob and Paul, have just stepped up huge to do that. So I just want to give you guys a little update on what is happening on the campground booking front because I know I get emails from time to time about from you guys just on how that's going and uh, everything. So just want to let you all know that uh, we are moving forward and uh, dealing with a little bit of hiccups this week, but uh, hopefully we'll be up and live come Saturday. So thank you guys for checking in. And without further ado, let's jump into this episode with Ashish. Ashish, thanks for being on the podcast with me, man. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. So you and I have had a lot of interesting conversations. I think one thing that I will point out is our favorite memory to date is after the Elkhart RV launch, we all went out to dinner and it was like late at night. I would have to say you're like one of the worst people at peer pressure that I've ever seen. We're like sitting there at a table and everyone's done with eating dinner and Ashish is like ordering drinks. It's like 10 o'clock. I'm normally in bed at this time, but you're like, everyone, you're going to take a, a shot of this. And <laughs> and then everyone has to go around and get their drink, but then you didn't even have one. Well, what happens Heath, is that, you know, when you're doing an event like this, uh, it's the, in the moment, everybody's very energetic and you're focused on the goal and things like that. But I think sometimes we don't stop enough to celebrate and that's why I thought that, you know, at the dinner, uh, it made sense to celebrate a little bit and say thanks to the guys who did a lot of the work. Hmm. But for me, yeah, you know, my tolerance is uh, sometimes a little low, <laughs> so I stop a little earlier. But that doesn't mean I don't encourage other people to celebrate. Have you always been good at celebrating wins? Because that's something I've, I've talked about before and I, I've struggled a lot with is like, Alyssa and I had a big goal this past year to pay off all of my student debt. We did it and that's huge. And we, we did go on a trip to celebrate that. But just in general, I've been really bad at celebrating like wins. And uh, I was just interested. Have you always been good at celebrating those? I think, you know, what you need to do is uh, it's not just the big ones, but even just small ones. I don't think we take time to be thankful for things in general in our lives. It's not just at work. And so I think the whole mental approach of saying, look, uh, while things are bad from time to time, but overall there are just so many things to be thankful for in many of our lives, I think it's worth doing that. It, it does help to put things in perspective. It does help to put you in the right state of mind to do good work as well and you know, have a good time. Yeah. Thanks for being on the podcast, man. I, I wanted to have you on here because every time you and I have a conversation, we just pretty much hang out at RV shows now. I walk away contemplating and thinking about something new. And I know you're not technically an entrepreneur in the traditional sense. You don't you haven't started a company that you run, but you have to think very entrepreneurially in your role and when you evaluate companies. And we had an interesting conversation in Louisville a few months back where I was basically talking to you and I was like, you have the coolest job ever because you're just at a high level. You can really impact, you know, these large companies like Winnebago on a macro scale and impact markets. And you're just sitting back, you're kind of evaluating all of these opportunities on the horizon and just looking at the pain points of customers and you can deploy these solutions for how they're solved. And you're like, yeah, you know, I am, but you really have to decide whether or not you want to be in that type of role or you want to be in the role of an entrepreneur. So I was wondering if you could just kind of talk about like the beginning and how you've formed your role as somebody who is not really an entrepreneur, but you have to spend most of your days thinking very entrepreneurially, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that's a great uh, question. And, you know, early in my career, I did work with a software startup for a number of years, and it was six or seven years, so it wasn't a small period of time. And I think it's a process of discovery and learning where you think about 
what are the things that I'm good at and what are the things that I enjoy doing? And I found there were a few things that I enjoyed doing. I enjoyed solving problems. I enjoyed talking to people. And I enjoyed looking for patterns in information or in data. And so then you think about uh, where can I really take these skills and apply them? And partially it is when you're early on in your career, you just do you know, what comes in front of you and you're in the learning mode and you're getting better at what you're doing. So as I was going along, I found that these things that I was good at, it led me to uh, new business development. It led me to growth strategies and how do you grow businesses. It led me to understanding customers better. And having been an entrepreneur and having been an employee, I think for me, the biggest difference that I see uh, between the two is that with an entrepreneur, the sense of responsibility, the sense of, you know, you are responsible, like, you know, I had a team of people and you're responsible for that team uh, in a very, very Darwinian visceral way. You know, you are responsible if you're not able to give them their pay uh, every week or every 15 days. That's a problem for their family. So there is a tremendous sense of responsibility. There is also a sense of the ability, willingness to take a risk. You have to be a risk taker to be an entrepreneur. Whereas inside a company, while I do agree with you that a lot of what I do, there are themes of entrepreneurship in there. I think it's still, uh, I can do it in a way that is supported by the company. I can do it in a way where there is a safety net of a kind. And that's really what the fundamental difference that uh, I think you've got to have. And uh, that determines a lot of the things that you do. Yeah. Did you have any type of detachment issues with being an entrepreneur? It's kind of a buzzword. It's kind of a cool thing right now to be an entrepreneur. And it sometimes it sucks really bad. Like this past week, we did a soft launch for this software product we've been building for a year campground booking and one of our first clients jumped on board and there was a thousand people on the servers within a few minutes and there was a bug that we missed and we didn't expect that much of a flux of traffic and long story short it totally crapped out and we're, we're kind of going through a freak out moment having to evaluate everything's going to be fine anyway what i was what i was going to ask you was being an entrepreneur is kind of a sexy word right now uh, and a lot of people want to do it did you have any detachment issues with leaving behind quote unquote, being an entrepreneur to go be an employee? Or were you fine because you realized that's where a lot of your skills were and, and could be valuable? Uh, no, not at all. I think for me, uh, walking away from uh, the software startup was one of the most difficult things I've done in my life. And the reason I was able to do that or the way I guess I justified it to myself was that at the time, I was this was in India where I was running the startup. And the Indian market was opening up to international companies, and I was more thinking about uh, global markets and global opportunities. And so I realized that I needed to go and get some global exposure and then decide whether I wanted to do this at a much bigger scale. But definitely for me, being an entrepreneur was one of the most exciting times of my working life. And uh, it was not at all an easy decision to walk away. There is a lot of emotional involvement when you're doing that for six or seven years. And it was pretty tough. So what happened after you left uh, running the startup? Kind of walk me through the uh, kind of, I guess, abbreviated version of what's been happening since then in your career. It's been really interesting. And, you know, what happens is I honestly believe that 
you don't control a lot of things that happen to you in your life. So my motto is that you do the best that you can in every single piece of work that you do, every interaction that you do, you do the best that you can, but the universe is a complex place and you may not always get the outcome that you're looking for. And so what I did was I went to uh, grad school in France and having completed that, I went and worked in uh, strategy consulting with uh, one of the leading strategy consulting firms, uh, Bain and Company. And then I've worked, as you said in your introduction, with a variety of companies, uh, Motorola Solutions, a company called Moog or Moog, uh, as well as Honeywell, in positions that dealt with marketing, uh, new business development, growth strategy. And it's been taking those same themes that I talked about, which is, who is your customer? How do you understand your customer better than any one of your competitors does? And what is the unmet need that you're solving for the customer? So really digging deep into understanding your customer and customer insights and using those insights to do two things. One is to develop products and services based on those insights. And two is to work on the marketing messaging for your customers in terms that they care about. Why should they be interested in your product? So that's been really the theme of how my job has been uh, evolving. And since it's fundamentally related with growth in companies, growth can be of two kinds. One is growth from internal growth or what they would call organic growth, which is building the company uh, from inside. And the other is inorganic growth or acquisitions. And those have been the two broad areas that I've been involved in. Yeah. So when you look at those skills and how you've come into the RVing world and the RVing community, you didn't have any background knowledge of RVs before you jumped into this space a couple of years ago, right? Yes, that's correct. So did you have any perceptions of the RV industry in general, just kind of at a blanket when you were starting to evaluate this opportunity? Or? Yeah, it was just you know such a fascinating journey that for me, when I was working at Honeywell, uh, if I was given a list and said, you know, put the top five companies you're going to be, you think you might be working in one year from now, uh, Winnebago wouldn't have been on the list. And this goes back to a lot of the things I was, I was saying about, you know, we don't control many things that happen in our lives. And so I got a call about this interesting opportunity. And I was pretty upfront with the company when I was talking to them to say, look, I'm not an RVer, I'm not an industry insider, but there are some skills that I bring. But if you are looking for an industry insider, then that's not me. And what they were very clear about was that they were looking for someone to come in and do growth strategy and acquisitions. And so, you know, my boss, who's the president and CEO of the company, Mike Happy, I was his first uh, senior hire, and he was really interested in building a culture uh, that was more strategic and forward-looking. Uh, and uh, we were thinking about doing acquisitions. And so when I came in, the challenge for me was, how do I learn enough about the industry in a short period of time? And how do I understand where the opportunities are? And what I always tell people is, always, always start with the customer. And I want to make sure that we understand who the customer is. I don't mean an RV dealer. I don't mean somebody in the chain, but I mean the end customer who puts down a certain amount of money and buys an RV. And I liken it to people where, you know, you have a, a nice gift in a gift wrap box. Uh, you can transfer the box between different people, but ultimately there's one person who opens the ribbon, opens the box and takes out the gift <laughs> inside. That's the customer you need to focus on. And so I think really investing in understanding that customer 
is the way to understand the challenges and opportunities uh, in the industry. And so I normally do two or three things to try and do that. Number one, I go and actually meet with customers, go to a dealership, spend time over there, talk to the people working in the dealership, talk to customers, just really understand what they're thinking about. You know, how do you buy these vehicles? What do you think about when you buy it? What are some of the features that you look at? The next thing I do is I go to customer care. This is the department where people would call Winnebago if they have uh, any issue with their RV. So it could be called customer service, customer care, uh, things like that. That's another very useful place where uh, you can understand really uh, who is contacting this department. Why do they contact them? What do they talk about? And on the side of the company, uh, who is answering those calls and how do they answer and what information do they need? And the last place I would uh, definitely suggest uh, for people to go is the quality control department on the manufacturing side, which is what are the issues we're having with manufacturing these vehicles uh, and what is that telling you? And I think these three areas together, the customer interactions from the dealership and end customers, the customer care or customer service and quality uh, gives you a, a very, very good picture of some of the challenges and opportunities that the company and the industry have. So when you're going in this phase, are you kind of reframing from actually diving in and trying to come up with solutions until you actually have a lot of this data? And I guess you spend the first several months, even maybe a year, just kind of listening and gathering data, and then you start looking for trends and pain points where Winnebago could potentially bring in services, make acquisitions, and, and solve those problems. That's right. I think initially when you go in, what you do is you, you must be a very good listener. And, you know, I use an approach which is called uh, human-centered design. And it's not unique. I mean, you know, there are lots of people who use this approach, which is spending time with the customer in the environment in which they use the product. So when you're talking to an RV customer, having that conversation in the RV or when they're actually driving the RV gives you a certain level of insight that you don't get when you're sitting in a trade show booth or in a conference room talking to them. When you actually see them in the act of using the product, you get certain insights that you wouldn't get otherwise. And people aren't that good at explaining things to you versus when you actually see what they're doing. So I think that that's the first thing. However, having said that, I think based on your uh, investigations, you need to come up with a set of hypotheses which says, I think the issue in this industry is or issue with this product could be. And then you need to put in a, pl a process of validation where you would go and look for data to validate that thesis that you have. And you have to be a little careful not to get too influenced by individual data points, but you must do enough work to say, is this a pattern that I'm seeing that makes sense? Is this something that applies to enough customers? And then you'll know that you're onto something. Yeah, I'm listening to what a lot of you're saying. And even though Winnebago is a billion dollar company, I think this very much applies to startups too and people who are just getting started. Because I mean, for the past year, uh, me and my business partners, we've went to over 100 campgrounds. Like I've sat in front offices as we've been building out software solutions for them. And it's huge to just see like, how are they using this and, and what are pain points? Because I found that, I don't know if everyone does this, but me in particular, it's like, 
I try to come up with solutions for something, and I'm not even sure if that's a real pain point that they have. So has there been times in your experience whenever you're going through this and you've you've basically come up with these hypotheses that have been totally incorrect? And how long did it take you to figure out that they were wrong? That's a really good question. And I think, you know, as you say, these principles, this thought process of the framework of customer first and understanding unmet needs is as applicable to a billion dollar company as it is to a startup. And I think the important thing is to be really fact-based and data-driven and not fall in love with your ideas, to be dispassionate and say, look, if this is a customer need that we're really meeting, let's validate that and let's make sure that if it's not, uh, then you move ahead. And what happens very often is that, you know, when you when you have some hypothesis, uh, you may well be completely wrong. And when I, you know, think about it, uh, many years back when I was working in Motorola Solutions, I was working in a business that made uh, pretty high-end two-way radios or walkie-talkies. But these were things that were being used by uh, public safety and the police and in military applications as well as industrial. So they found that, you know, having a compact, phones were becoming smaller, everything was becoming smaller. So they did some research where they said, we will come up with a smaller radio. But the reality was that for the customers, the customers, particularly in areas like public safety, oil and gas, places like that, they wanted something that was very, very robust and durable. And sometimes the smaller form factor, wearing gloves and using industrial equipment, it was really difficult to use it. So that was an example where the hypothesis that smaller and more compact is better, that was true in general. But when you get specific and look at it in the context of your customer, you realize that that may not have been the case. And in fact, if you had rolled out the smaller radio, it may not have sold as well as the bigger ones did because of that. Hmm. When you uh, like you spent some time, I know you took an RV out with your family and you spent time listening. What were some of the interesting things in the RVing community that you noticed were glaring? Like what kept coming top of mind for you as you started listening and hearing more and talking to more customers? I'm a great believer that when you are dealing with a product, if there is a way that you can really try out the product, then just try it out. So what I did was I went to our a Forest City factory, and I took an RV and I said, look, just don't give me too much of an orientation. Just tell me where the ignition is and where you fill gas from. And I'm <laughs> going to take it from Forest City, drive to Minneapolis, which is a couple of hours north of Forest City in Iowa, and uh, then I'm going to drive it around for a few days. And it was, it was really interesting to me that uh, when the RV was parked in my driveway, the number of neighbors that came by and said, uh, is that yours? Can I see it? And I said, you know, of course, you, you can see it. I can even sell it to you if you want. Uh, but this was the, the first thing is that not enough people really have seen RVs close up. Hmm. And I think part of the issue is that RV dealerships typically are on the outskirts of the city because they have more uh, real estate there. Uh, RV shows, you know, not everybody goes to RVing. So one of the questions I was thinking at the point is that, how do you take the RV to the customer if the customer is not coming to the RV? So I think many people don't realize how sophisticated RVs are, uh, what kind of subsystems you have in them and things like that. Second lesson for me was that, you know, when I was driving the RV around, it's actually difficult 
uh, to figure out the subsystems in the RV if you don't have some guidance. So it does take a bit of effort. And my example was that the air conditioning unit at the back of the RV, it just wasn't coming on. And no matter what I did, you know, I was traveling with my boys. It was uh, Father's Day weekend and we were going to Wisconsin and it was extremely hot. And we just couldn't figure out how to get the air conditioning on. Uh, much later, I realized that if the generator isn't on, uh, then the air conditioner, which is the house air conditioner, doesn't come on. But you see, I was a naive RV user. I was a new RV user. And I didn't realize some of these things immediately. So what happens is that as the RV industry grows, and as we want to bring in more people into the fold, you've got to think about some of this tribal knowledge that is embedded within RVers and the RV community? And how do you teach some of these things? How do you make it easier so that that initial barrier is not there for the customers? I think that's something that we need to do. And there are some interesting ways that you can uh, think of doing it. Uh, but that's another challenge which was there, just you know, the complexity of the subsystems and uh, the, the effort that you need to make it easy to use. So those were a couple of the examples that uh, came across uh, for me when I was in the early stages of uh, driving an RV around. Yeah, no, I, I mean, there's there's so much opportunity. It's kind of a black hole of things to fix. It's not like everything's broken. I mean, the industry's growing like crazy. I think I saw the stats the other day. It was like over 500 million RVs sold. They talked about that at RVIA. So, I mean, people are buying RVs like crazy. Economy's good and all that. So it's not broken, but there are a lot of room to expand for sure. So whenever you're finding these opportunities, and again, I keep kind of comparing this back to uh, you know early stage companies, but I think it's applicable for everyone. How do you start looking at ways to solve that? Because you kind of go from the stage of listening, okay, here's a few things that are coming up as pain points, start to form a hypothesis. So how do you kind of frame up how to tackle this problem? Do you start saying like, okay, there's other companies out there that are already doing this really well? You know, let's kind of approach them and see, like, is there a natural partnership or maybe acquisition opportunity? Or does it make sense to kind of build some type of solution internally through, you know, A-B testing and using our engineer? So, like, how do you start positioning yourself into that opportunity in that phase? My feel is what uh, you have to think about is uh, when you have a set of these initiatives or improvements that you can do, uh, you have to actually plot them along two axes. And this is called the impact difficulty matrix, if you will. So on one axis, you think about the impact, which is if I were to solve this problem, how significant or impactful would it be to the customer? And on the other axis, what you're plotting is, if I was able to solve this problem, how much effort would it take and how difficult would it be? And then you end up with a combination of problems, which are at different levels of difficulty and impact. And you need to then pick a couple that you're going to go and solve. And I would say that initially, rather than get into uh, where you will do it in the sense of, you know, whether you will internally solve it or whether you will go and acquire a company, et cetera, I think just digging into that customer need and doing some prototyping, doing some quick problem diagnostic and doing some prototyping uh, there are ways of doing prototyping that you can do with mock-ups, you can do it with models, you can do it with different things. So it doesn't have to be a very elaborate prototyping, but it goes back to the A-B testing that you're talking about. But having a bias for doing iterations, for really taking an approach which is more uh, agile, 
So being iterative and going back to the customer, involving them in the prototypes and making modifications on this, I think that's the best way to do it. What happens in a larger company is that you can't do that for every single project. You've got to look for opportunities to do that. But I think when you do it well, uh, for example, recently, you know, Winnebago launched uh, a 4 by 4 RV, the Revel, uh, and you've been seeing uh, the success that the Revel has had. I think that's a great example where when you do your research properly, the product that you come out with is really strikes a chord with your customer and it resonates with them. And then you don't have to really do the hard sell for the product, but it's almost as if the customer is pulling the product versus you having to push it. Hmm. No, that makes total sense. And I know something on the point of the Revel, it's like Russ Garfin, the product manager for Class Bs, he he came to our summit last year. He has a Travado. I've driven around with him and his Travado. He's very active in that community. He goes on trips with Travado owners. And so he was just, you know, he talking about that human-centered design, like Russ is always in the products with these people. He has one and he's listening. He's in the Facebook groups. And so when he, you know, he very much has his ear to the ground. So he's he's doing that research all the time, whether or not, like I'm sure it kind of blurs between like him actually living it and doing that research. But yeah, you're right. That's a perfect example of that. Yeah. And, you know, we are very fortunate in Winnebago. So uh, we've got people with uh, lots and lots of experience and guys like, you know, Russ just being really committed and being part of the lifestyle. And that's just such a great starting point because then you have the background, the perspective to be able to work with the customers and do some of these things. And I think that combination of people with the RV industry experience and people like me who come in from the outside uh, with transferable skills or interesting things we've done in other companies, that combination, I believe, is a particularly powerful combination to be able to do things uh, differently. Yeah. And when you're talking about this graph that you come up with where you're basically evaluating these different needs and some of them are more impactful, but maybe they're more challenging, do you try to find the need that would solve the most impact for the least effort? Or is that like an uncomplicated way to say that? I'm just trying to understand, there's all these different pain points. How do you figure out which one to tackle first and start prototyping and testing? Yeah, I I think that initially you would start off with uh, the one that has the highest impact and takes the least effort. So that's the low-hanging fruit. Because also what happens is both with your customers as well as internally, these successes then become proof points. And you can say, hey, look, you know, we thought about this. We went to the customer, understood needs, created a prototype, implemented something, and here's how we saw the results. And I think that's a good way to start the process off because initially when you try and bite off something which is too significant, uh, there are a few challenges that you end up in. One is that it does take more time for you to see the results. It may take more investments as well. And so internally, when you're trying to find money or if it's a startup, you're looking for more funding, that becomes a more significant problem. But if you always are looking at the small problems, then you don't really do the revolutionary innovation or the disruptive innovation, but you're, you know, tinkering around a little bit. So you have to start with those, but as you go ahead, you need to ultimately tackle the problems which are the biggest problems that the industry or the company, their customers are facing. I yeah agree. And one thing that we talked about, like the first time we met, you were talking about the Grand Designs acquisition 
it's kind of a weird thing because when you from the outside in, when you look at companies that get bought for millions and millions or billions of dollars, you're just like, man, they're a unicorn. They went really well. And it's just kind of this far off land where you never can imagine ever being in that scenario. But the way you described the Grand Designs acquisition, you're like, yeah, there's all these reasons why it made sense. And the way you described it to me was just really simple. And basically, you know, like they have a great reputation for service. They sell a lot of towables. Winnebago wants to grow towables, et cetera. There's all these reasons why it made so much sense. And in my mind, something kind of clicked. And I'm like, you know what? Building something to be sold is, is very similar to almost like pitching a client relationship. I have something that's valuable to you. And here's all the reasons why it makes sense. So I'm just kind of interested in your philosophy on when it does come to that point and, and you're looking at acquiring companies. I'm sure you've done this a lot in your career. What are some of the things that you look for that make it a for sure, like, yes, this makes sense to acquire this company and bring this company into the fold? Does that make sense? Yeah, makes sense. And uh, for us, you know, when we think about these uh, acquisitions in Winnebago, we look at three buckets. There's the first bucket, which is strategic. Why does bringing these companies together make strategic sense? And if I use brand design as the backdrop, uh, Winnebago was a company with 90% of revenue in motorhomes and about 10% in towables. Uh, the market overall was 85% towables, 15% motorhomes. So we weren't playing in that biggest area. Grand Design was only in towables, and they had grown very, very fast. They were the fastest-growing company. So from a strategy perspective, it made sense. The next bucket after strategy is cultural. And cultural is a little bit more uh, intangible, as you said, but it's this question of a common shared set of values. And what we found is that you know these are two companies, Winnebago and Grand Design, uh, that really care a lot about the customer, that are really good at building relationships with customers. Uh, we want to build high quality, innovative products. Uh, we want to keep customers for life. We want to enable some of the most extraordinary adventures that our customers have had. And so there were a lot of shared values in that cultural piece. And then the third, of course, is financial, which is uh, when you acquire the company, how does the combined company grow faster? How do you make money? How do you uh, repay uh, the money that you've borrowed? So I would say that those are the three buckets, strategic, cultural, and financial, uh, you need to keep thinking about when you're making these, uh, these kinds of acquisitions. Yeah. Have you worked with a lot of companies that are earlier on in the startup phase? I know some sometimes big companies, they'll actually almost incubate other you know potential solutions and, and invest in them and then acquire them when they get bigger. Have you done that in your career as well? Yeah. Early on in my career, not uh, at Winnebago, but in uh, prior jobs, we have done. And you know, one of the specific areas that this becomes important or relevant is in the area of software services and emerging technologies where typically the companies end up being pretty small. And so either they may not want to be acquired uh, for a large company, acquiring a very small company may not be worthwhile. And you might want to place a few bets with these companies. And so this involvement could take the form of a, a strategic alliance. You could do a preferred a supplier agreement with this company. Uh, you could even take a small minority stake in the company. So there are a variety of ways that you can uh, stay close to the company. 
and uh, follow them to see what's going on. And then when things uh, evolve, you can decide what you want to do. Because again, from a cultural perspective, you know, what you want in a startup is you want them to be really moving fast. You want agility. Uh, you want mental aggression. But at the same time, you want people who are what I would call frugal innovators, who are used to working under resource constraints, uh, but who are willing to think really creatively about solutions they can come up with. And I think that's why sometimes keeping the smaller companies separate from the larger companies preserves that uh, outlook that they have to their business. You see a lot of companies that will get acquired by a large company and then they'll kind of crumple up and slowly die. You know, I'm sure it's all case-by-case issue, but why do you think that is as a whole? Just maybe a variety of factors stifled innovation or... Yeah, you know, you you have to understand what makes the company succeed, right? I mean, in our case, uh, if you take Grand Design, uh, after we acquired them, it's been now a year, and they've grown even faster than before we had acquired them. And I'm, you know, extremely thrilled about that. But I think the thing was that we sat down with them and we said, okay, what makes sense for these guys to keep doing? Of course, as part of a public company that Winnebago is, You do have some things you have to do to meet uh, government regulations, regulatory compliance, and those are not things that you want to have any uh, discussion about, Uh, but there are other things that you can do. So I think in the integration of any business that you acquire, uh, just being thoughtful about the integration and to say what makes sense to integrate and how can we make this integration to make this company even more successful? I think that's what you've got to think about rather than just you know smashing the two companies together <laughs> or bringing them together willy-nilly. I think that won't make sense. What can startups and growing companies do to look more, to, to be more appealing uh, in, in acquisitions if that is a goal for them? So I would say that you know it's almost as if uh, that distracts from the core Uh, cause for a company. And to me, the core cause of a company is find customers that you can serve better than your competition. Find unmet needs for the customer and pain points. And just get as many customers as you can to build a sustainable business. And the rest will come. So don't immediately think about Uh, you know, how to package the company and what can I do? Because again, what happens with some of these things is uh, it's really superficial. It becomes like skinning a company or putting uh, just a a thin layer on the top. Uh, But I would say that deep down what you're building is way more important than any of those things. And when you have conversations with people uh, in companies, that comes across pretty quickly. You know, you you can figure that out and Uh, People are pretty good at figuring that out. So I wouldn't really bother about that. I would really, you know, continue to stay focused all the time on the customer and meeting their unmet needs better than anybody else can. Yeah, no, I love that. Well, I appreciate it, man. This has been really, really good. Uh, Very different than any of the other podcast episodes I think I've had, but in a good way. Uh, last question I have, I, I typically ask, how do you define success in uh, your RV entrepreneurial lifestyle uh, and what you're doing and building a business on the road? But that's not you. So I'm going to ask you a different form of that same question, which is just how do you define success as you are you know, heading up strategy for a large company like Winnebago? Like what, what does success look like in that? 
Yeah, I think that's a, a really good question and one that we should be thinking about more regularly. I think there are some parts of my job which are easier to measure. So, for example, I'm responsible for acquisitions. You know, did we do an acquisition like Grand Design and close it? Okay, that's success. Uh, but what happens is when you think about a school, like a kindergarten or a, an elementary school, the teachers, when they do report cards, they do report cards on two dimensions. One is the effort dimension, which is, you know, how hard did the child work in class? And the second is the results. And the results is, okay, so what was their grade uh, in the homework or in the exam? And I think you have to think about these on these two dimensions because sometimes you are taking the efforts which are not going to give you uh, immediate results. And then there are other places where you will get results. So when you think about areas like strategy, uh, one of the things is, are we getting more strategic? You know, do we have a strategy planning process? Are we thinking more strategically about our markets? And there I would say, think about the effort and think about the results. But overall, I would say that for my position, you have to think about the impact that you're having uh, on the overall organization. And some of this impact takes time and it's a group effort. So, you know, as they say that if you're going on a short journey, go alone. If you're going on a really long journey, take lots of people with you. So I think in my job, you have to really get a big group of people believing in the direction and the cause where you're going. And then you need to turn the company to do that. So if Winnebago were to become a more customer centric, customer led, design led company, uh, I think for me, that would be a great success if we did more acquisitions. But ultimately, it's going to be, do we have customers who are customers for life? You know, do we treat these customers better? We may not be building the biggest company in the RV industry, but is it really the best company? That's really the way I would define success. I love it, man. Well, I'm excited to see what happens as you continue to implement uh, all these strategies with Winnebago and excited to see you in a few weeks at the summit. Thanks for being on the podcast, Ashish. Sounds good. Look forward to seeing you guys over there. Thanks so much. Hey guys, thanks for tuning into that episode with Ashish. To grab the show notes, head on over to heathandalyssa.com and click on podcast. All the show notes are over there. Just want to say thank you guys again for listening to this podcast. It always means the world to me whenever I hear from y'all in an email, text, Facebook, Instagram, however it is that you like to communicate. <laughs> and I have one request from you guys uh, that I haven't asked before because I do sometimes ask stuff at the end of this podcast. But if there's one person who has talked to you about this idea of going to travel or live in an RV or start a business and this podcast has been helpful for you, shoot them a link. Tell them that this podcast has been helpful and meaningful for you and that they should take a listen because your word of mouth means everything. So thank you guys for listening and I'll see y'all next time on the RV Entrepreneur Podcast.